Philippians 1, 29 through 30. We're going to be continuing on from where we left off last week um, in Philippians chapter 1. So please uh, turn to those last few verses of that chapter right now uh, in your Bibles. Last week, we looked at the, the first two verses in this uh, four-verse section that ends the chapter, that ends chapter 1. Uh, and, and remember, it needs to be thought of as one section because in the, uh, in the original language, it's, it, it is just one long sentence. And if you remember from last week, verse 27 uh, of Philippians 1 is a major turning point in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians is up until this moment, Paul has been mainly talking about, um, about himself and what he is experiencing and how he is being uh, encouraged, and, and also about the encouragement that the Philippian Christians uh, have been to him as he remembers them in his prayers. It isn't until verse 27 in chapter 1 that Paul finally gives the Philippians an imperative uh, to obey, a direct an imperative, a direct instruction on what they are supposed to do or how they are to live. And that instruction that he gives is that they are to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And so hopefully you remember that from last week, because that is the imperative. That is the, the main verb that governs the whole sentence that makes up verses 27 through 30. And and last week, we talked a lot about what that meant. So I'm hoping that you were able to listen to that message from last week, uh, because it, is, it will be helpful for context for this week. So last week, we saw uh, what Paul is asking them to do is to live this present life, live in this life with the understanding that they are citizens of an eternal kingdom. They're, they're not primarily primarily. Philippians, they're not primarily Romans, but that uh, their true nationality, their true nationality is that they are citizens of the kingdom of God. And since God is their true king, they should be living their lives now in a consistent manner that makes it, makes it obvious uh, to themselves and to others around them that this is what they understand, that they're ambassadors for Christ of, a, of an eternal kingdom. They do not seek to please men. Uh, nor do they need the favor of men. Their sincere desire should be to please their God, and it should be the same for us. And the primary way that we live a life worthy of the gospel, the thing that we saw last week that we talked about that Paul desires to see most among these people is it has to do with their relationship to the church, that they are standing firm. Remember, if you look at those words that Paul uses in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Christians are walking, they should be walking together in true unity. And again, we talked a lot last week about what true unity in the church looks like. And the confidence that comes to us as we truly stand together and are united in that same understanding of who we truly are and to whom we truly belong. That gives us confidence as we are opposed by, by many who do not understand the gospel and, and may in fact hate the gospel. Those who lash out against the true Christ and against his kingdom and his kingdom principles. The fact that there is a whole world system that hates the true gospel and mocks and even, and even makes laws against it and lashes out at the members of God's kingdom does not frighten us in any way. It should not frighten us in any way. As we look around at those who stand unified with us in our church, the members of our church, and, and, and we boldly speak up together for God's kingdom and for its purposes, it is a sign of our eternal salvation. We're to see that as a sign of our eternal salvation, that we do that and a sign of their destruction. And so, and as verse 28 says at the end, this is not just a, a circumstantial sign, something that just, that's just there by accident, that takes, that takes place as a natural result of the actions that we do. No, we see here that it is a sign from 
God. That's, that's what he says at the end. A sign from God at the end of verse 28. Something that he intends to show and make known to the world. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It's from God. It is vital. It is vital that we understand the God-ordained purpose of this sign because this is the this is the opposite message of our Christian culture in general today. And this has become even more clear, I think, during this time of pandemic. The thrust of American Christianity seems to be to try and minimize or, or even to outright deny the vast amount of differences between the purposes and pleasures of the people of the world and the purposes and pleasures of the people of God. They're trying to get away from all of those things that are meant to show a stark and even opposite view on almost everything of real significance between us and the world. And instead, they're trying to unite us under whatever we can possibly find in common, anything at all. And of course, there are going to be things that overlap when it comes to values because everyone Everyone, whether they like it or not, is still made in the image of God, and they, and they have his law embedded in their conscience. Indeed, the unbeliever does not realize that every time they make a moral argument, they are borrowing from the worldview of the creator God whom they reject. They're acting on the premise that objective right and wrong exist. Even the people who argue against that demonstrate how, how reprobate their thinking is by trying to show that it is absolutely wrong to say something is wrong. So you've all seen that and understand that ridiculousness. So, so yes, we will be able to find an ally in the consciences of fallen men, as all people cannot help but demonstrate that they are made in the image of God in certain ways that they think, whether they like it or not. But the purpose of God, God's actual purpose, the purpose of this sign, is not for us to see ourselves as fundamentally the same and then try to, try to unify with them to, to, make the, to, to make the mission, and this is what we're seeing, to make the mission of God one in which our responsibility is to demonstrate to those who still belong uh, to the kingdom of the world that there, uh, there isn't really that big of a difference between us and you. Not really. Let's, let's, let's concentrate on what we have in common. That is not our mission. That is not the purpose of this sign. This, this seems to, be, to have become the mentality, and, and again, even much of what they consider the mission of what it is called to be the church in our country, at this, especially at this time. This week, um, I saw I was sent the, the immensely popular, if you, if you maybe saw this, the immensely popular Christian band for King and Country. Um, if you know who they are, they released a song in a music video called Together. And if you watch it, it's about four minutes long. You don't need to. I wouldn't, um, again. Um, in, in what looks like an effort in that video to do just that. They're trying to unite everyone in the world, everyone in the world who is going through this pandemic, through a bunch of kind of nice-sounding but superficial types of things that almost anyone can relate to, the things that they're missing out on, on the things that are hard on them as a Christian band. And again, they're just demonstrating that the belief is, their belief is that the mission for Christians is that, that we are supposed to primarily be, be finding ways to relate to the world. But this is the exact opposite of what God intends to do in times like these. The exact opposite. The intention of God is not for us to come together with the world and all of those who, whose lives and hearts demonstrate that they are still part of the kingdom of darkness as they live for themselves and live for their sin and live in opposition to the God who created them. Where so much of Christian culture wants to minimize areas of potential disagreement and differences. They want to minimize the things that are in the areas of ultimate importance. God's desire God's desire is actually to magnify those areas, to magnify those areas, to show a complete distinction between those who are his people and those who still remain opposed to him. 
He wants that distinction magnified. When you look at this passage, it should be absolutely clear. Just look at verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It is absolutely clear that in that passage that the vastly different way in which Christians and non-Christians think about these things, the opposition that is intended to be present as, as these two starkly contrasting kingdoms kind of rub up against each other, that is intended by God to be a clear sign that allows us to be confident in our salvation. And it is to point them they are to see that it is a sign of their ultimate destruction if they do not repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to accomplish. There are those who are making every effort, every effort to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's those people, and then there's everyone else. And we're supposed to be able to see that difference. The two should look vastly different. And one of the chief ways that this should be seen is in the way that we suffer, in the way that we suffer. Whether it be the suffering that is caused directly because we belong to Christ and are living for his kingdom, or whether it is the suffering that comes as we endure the pain and trials that come from living in a fallen world. Whatever the case They suffer in a way, we should suffer in a way that brings honor to Christ and looks nothing like the way that the world might walk through a similar trial. Our suffering and our response to suffering is to be a sign that marks us as completely different than the world. While while their desire through this current trial that we're going through right now, their desire through this current trial is, is to have everything returned to normal. That's their desire. But ours is for God to use it to magnify himself through the righteous response of his church in, in whatever situation we might be living in. That's our main purpose, right? That's what we're praying, right? I hope you're praying more about that than about everything going back to normal. So whether it be our righteous response to the, to the current pandemic or our righteous response to the world's normal, where sin and selfishness reign and, and consumerism and, and leisure are worshipped, our purpose is the same in both of those places, to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, whatever our surroundings look like, a way that is in such contrast to everyone else that it stands as a clear sign for us and for our salvation and against them and against those who are of darkness. So with that in mind, let's, let's read this uh, magnificent section of Scripture once again. But let's start in verse 27 where we were last week. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So today we're going to be concentrating on verses 29 and 30. And you can see, hopefully, the connection uh, to the text from last week right away, and, and in particular that understanding of a sign of a sign, right? Right at the start of verse 29 where he uses the word for, connecting it to what he's just said. He says for. This word clearly connects it with the previous sentence. 
Um, well, the previous sentence from the English translation, it's the same sentence again, but he's connecting it to that, and you need to think of it in those terms. Verse 29 and 30, as you can, as you can see and you can tell just from reading it, are all about suffering, and, in, and it's an extension of what Paul has just said about the sign of not being frightened by your opponents, because, because of the truth of what God is trying to accomplish through the sign of opposition against believers, because of that truth, believers are to understand suffering in this way. They're understanding in this way that he's talking about. So, so all of that introduction, everything we've just talked about, is to establish firmly in your mind, as we think through the subject of suffering, um, it needs to be established this way, that Christians understand, Christians are to understand and respond to suffering in a vastly different way than those who still belong to the world and who do not understand the gospel. It needs to be starkly different. We who understand the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us, and, and therefore want to live lives worthy of those who understand all that God has done to save us, should have a completely different mindset when it comes to suffering. Completely different. Right now, if you just watch TV or any, right now, everyone, everyone in culture, from newscasters to talk show hosts to celebrities to, to mega church pastors to even, to even random commercials about almost every product you can imagine, from, from paper towels to cars, have, have all, they all have the same message. Guys, we got to persevere, keep going, don't give up. We're going to get through this. We're going to do this together. That, that kind of thinking, you hear that in, in, in commercials. And, and their goal, the goal of the world that they have in coming out of all of this is something, like we said, is something along the lines of returning to normal. That's the goal. That's the end game. That's what coming out of this looks like. That's what we want, where we want to be. Is, is to return to our normal, godless culture that we had before. So you, Christian, need to watch your feelings. You need to not sink into the pit of that type of thinking. We, we have a vastly different understanding of suffering and the purpose behind it, or we should don't fall into the trap of thinking that we have anywhere near the same goal as the rest of the world. Nowhere near the same goal. God intends our understanding and our reaction to this to be a sign that demonstrates, a sign that demonstrates that we belong to another kingdom. They need to see that in us. The, the same way he intends for all of our suffering to point to this, he intends the same thing for this. So, so today... We're going to look at suffering. We are going to see three truths about the suffering Christian, which, when understood properly, will cause us to respond to suffering in such a way that the world will know, will know that we are members of a very different kingdom with, with vastly different values and vastly different goals and purposes. That's where we're going today. What we need to understand about our suffering so that we can respond to it in such a way that we will receive confidence of our eternal salvation and that those around us would see that they are clearly not part of the same kingdom as we are. So we're going to see that through three truths, three points, three truths about suffering that we need to understand, that we need to really believe no matter how hard things get or how much we are tempted to believe otherwise, we must be convinced down at our, our very core that, that what this passage is telling us is true about suffering really is true about suffering. If, if we are going to be able to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel, then we need to believe these truths about suffering. We need to know that suffering for the Christian is, number one, a gift of grace. Number two, it's for the cause of Christ. And number three, it is a privilege of participation. So, so the first thing we need to know is that suffering is a, a gift of grace, a gift of grace. Look, look carefully again at the wording of verse 29. He says, Paul says, for it has been 
granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. But Paul has set up what he is saying about suffering in this verse with how he closed the last one by referring to the sign represented in the believer's actions as they are opposed as being a sign from God. It's from God. Your suffering is from God. And this, this goes against our thinking just as, it, just as much as it probably would theirs. That is, that is the reason Paul goes into so much detail on the importance of understanding suffering as being from God. If it was, if it was natural for us to think this way, if it was natural for us to, to think of suffering in those terms, then Paul wouldn't need to talk about it as he does here. He wouldn't need to bring it up in this way. So here it's like he's illustrating the point that they are experiencing something from God. He needs to illustrate that to them, reminding them of his sovereignty, that the opposition that they face is not some bad thing that God needs to help them through. That's not what it is. It's not, and it's not to be thought of primarily as a battle against Satan or the world. That's not the primary way they need to think of their suffering. The primary way they need to think of it as a gift from God. It's from God. And here Paul is sharing something just that's unbelievable. He's not just asking us to come to terms with suffering and to just rest assured that God is in control, though we should. As, as glorious as the truth is that God is in control of all things and that all things are working for our good and for His glory. And as much as that simple truth should, should settle our hearts and, and allow us to go to sleep at night, no matter what kind of chaos and pain may be surrounding us, that's not what Paul is talking about here. We're not merely to see suffering as an indifferent thing that God is using for our good, as though God is taking something that, that only exists as, as an intention of bad by someone else, encountering it with good, like he's responding to it. This is, as, this is typically as far as even some of the most mature Christians go when they're thinking through suffering. They're, they're, they see suffering as a bad thing that a good and sovereign God will then take and form into something good for you. You're going to take the bad and make it into something good. But Paul right here is actually going beyond that. Don't get me wrong, there's a sense in which that's true. But Paul's going beyond that. He is saying that it's, it's not that God is just fashioning something bad into something good for you. It's not merely that. He is telling the Philippians that they need to see the suffering itself as an actual gift, as a gift of grace. The actual pain, the actual suffering that you are going through is to be seen as a good and exceedingly gracious gift from God. He's not saying that any sin that was committed that may have led to the pain is a gift. He's not saying that. Not the sin that, that may have caused the suffering. It is the, the literal suffering that we go through, the experience of pain, the experience of loss that we feel, that very feeling that we generally try to overcome by telling ourselves that God is going to use the very thing that is causing this experience for something, uh, for something and he's going to use it for something that's good. What Paul is saying here is that the suffering isn't just leading to something good. He's saying that it is good. It is good. This is, this is why this is such a stunning statement by Paul. It's not God leading you through the valley to bring you into the blessing. Right? Though, though again, there, there's an occasion for that and for thinking that way. What he is saying, he is saying that we need to glory in the suffering itself. And not as, not as some sick person who enjoys pain, we don't, pretend, we don't pretend to enjoy pain or sorrow. If we, if we did, then that's not pain or sorrow. But rather, we are to see the pain, see the sorrow, see the hurt as a gift from a kind and loving God. 
And that is, that is a startling truth that Paul is trying to communicate here. And he wants to, to make it plain to them. This is how they must see it. He wants, he wants them to see it. He wants to make it so plain to them that he, that he places it in conjunction, in conjunction with the greatest gift imaginable. Paul says that it has been granted to you, right? In verse 29, it's been granted to you or, or given to you, as some translations say. That, that word, it, it means it, it refers to generously giving or graciously giving, like the giving of a present. It's, it's not meant to imply the mere changing of possession. Uh, that, that something that once belonged to someone else now belongs to you. It's not given to you like that. And it's, and it's certainly not meant to, to communicate something that, that God is merely allowing to happen to you. That's not giving something to you as a gift. Because this is where most of us get tripped up. God is allowing this to happen to me so that he can use it for my good. And no, the suffering itself is a gift of grace from God himself. It's in that word that that is granted to you. So there can be no escaping that conclusion. So there's no way that you could think otherwise. He ties it to the gift of our salvation. He's so concerned that what he's saying doesn't get misinterpreted here, that he ties the gift of suffering to the gift of our salvation. So there's a whole other sermon that that could be preached from how Paul just casually mentions the fact that their belief in the gospel has been granted to them. The the truth of the ability to repent and believe the gospel is is one one that we, we don't possess. We don't possess that ability. The fact that in our totally depraved state, God must do the work of causing us to believe the gospel through his irresistible grace. That is a fact, that is a truth, and we went into a little more detail on that last week, so, so again, I hope you remember some of the stuff said last week, but Paul's point in bringing up this gift, the gift of your own belief in Christ here, isn't to, to try and prove the doctrines of total depravity, and he's not trying to prove the doctrine of inability, and he's not trying to prove the doctrine of irresistible grace. He's not trying to prove the, the, the fact that God has the free and unmerited power to open the eyes of a blind sinner regardless of that sinner's desire and save them. Paul doesn't feel it's necessary to prove this great doctrine. He just takes it for granted and reminds them of the amazing gift of grace that it was, making the point that that just as that was an incredible gift of grace, your belief in the gospel too uh, your belief in the gospel, just as that was an incredible uh, gift of grace, so too is suffering a gracious gift from the same God who gave you that one. You need to think of it in the same way. It's as if Paul knows how startling what he is trying to communicate to them might be. So as he begins to make the statement that it has been granted to them to suffer, It's like he interrupts himself in the middle of the sentence to remind them of the most amazing gift of belief that they've received so that they'll not misunderstand just how great a gift suffering really is. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So even though he's making the larger point about suffering, he makes the statement in such a way as to demonstrate to all of these, uh, to demonstrate to all of these Philippians that these two gifts are connected. They're connected. The gift of belief comes, uh, the gift of belief comes with the gift of suffering. There is no one, no one who receives the gift of belief who does not also receive the gift of suffering for his sake. In verse 29, you see it clearly. They're connected the same gifts from the same God. If he gave you the gift of belief, he will not fail to give you the gift of suffering. This is such an important principle because so many people, so many people are just so off on this. They think about coming, when they think about coming to Christ, when they think about being chosen by God 
for salvation. It means chosen by God for salvation. It does save you from eternal suffering, but it in no way, it is in no way supposed to be some sort of protection from suffering here. In fact, it's not even that you'll just suffer less now. The call of God that save you, saves you also calls you to suffering. And those who have received the gift of belief and therefore make every effort to live in a manner worthy of the gospel will no doubt, no doubt, suffer more in this lifetime. More in this lifetime. Not only must we deal with all of the same pain that comes from living in a cursed earth, that same pain that everyone else experiences, but, but also the suffering that comes as we try to live faithful to Christ. As we try to live faithful to Christ, we cannot help but come into all kinds of conflict with the world. The word that is translated as suffer is a, is a present tense active verb, meaning that the suffering that Paul is talking about, the suffering that we have been given as a gift is an ongoing reality, something you're always going to deal with, always going to experience. It's something that you should, you should always be experiencing. If you are truly in Christ, if you truly understand the gospel, if God has opened your eyes to this unbelievable truth of how vile all sin is before a holy God, how it is so wicked because of who it is against, and that the punishment for that sin should be an eternity facing the wrath of God and hell, but that in spite of all of this, in spite of all of this, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came and lived in perfect obedience as your substitute in perfect obedience and as a substitute in his, uh, for you in his atoning death. And when you repent and put your trust in what Christ has done, you will be saved. The fact that God chose to open your eyes to this amazing truth and save you. And when you understand all of that, when you understand all of that, when you are really thinking through these truths, then there is a constant suffering that should be present within you. A constant suffering that should be present within you. I am saying that the Christian life is not one that jumps between moments of good with suffering, and then another moment of no suffering, then a little, no, a constant suffering is to mark the Christian life. Constant joy also, not, not saying that that's not true, but a constant suffering every second you are living in this world. A suffering, and it's a suffering now that, that we have a great illustration of, because the world is only getting kind of the littlest taste of the type of suffering that a, that a Christian should always be going through. Because right now, we are seeing in our country a bunch of people responding in all kinds of ways to this pandemic. People are flooding the marijuana and liquor stores. You, you, see, you see it, don't you? When you? If you go to the grocery store, that sense of stress and discomfort that you see on the faces, or at least on the eyes, I guess, of everyone in the grocery store. You see people just lashing out at the government you see people lashing out at the people who aren't lashing out at the government. There's just this overall feeling, even, even from the people who are trying to make the best of it, who are, who are making jokes of it. This overall feeling in the world right now that this isn't normal. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't, this isn't right. When you, when you hear that constant, that, that constant mantra of, we're going to get through this together come on, we can do this. Right? There's this understanding that we're all kind of suffering through this together. That suffering for them can be boiled down to the feeling that we are all living our lives in a way that's not right. This isn't the way lives should be lived. And we want to get back to the way it's supposed to be lived. That's the sense of the culture, right? But for the Christian who understands the gospel, 
the one who sees sin and all of its effects for the curse that it is, we should, we must be experiencing that type of suffering to a far greater extent every single day, right? When, when things get back to normal, when everything is open again and everyone is talking about, oh, how we made it through, we made it through it, a Christian, one whose eyes have been opened to the truth of sin, one who believes the Bible is the Word of God, still, every time they read a news article, get on Facebook, turn on the TV, overhear a conversation of any kind, or get to know anyone in any kind of meaningful way, every time we see or experience sin in any way, see its effects, see its results, we will still, and we will always have that saying in our head. We will always be saying to ourselves, this isn't right. This isn't how things are supposed to be. It is a point of ongoing suffering for every believer that should be going on throughout every moment of every day. That little thing that the world is so concerned about right now. To a much greater extent, in the depths of our heart every day, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. It's not point of ongoing suffering for us, that suffering that comes when someone knows that things aren't as they should be. It's our permanent lot in life, and it is a suffering that is a gift. It's a gift that we suffer that way. It's a gift because it shows that God has brought you to a new kingdom. If what gives you the most joy, if what you are looking forward to more than anything else right now is the day when you will once again be, be able to live in a slightly different version of a world that's under the curse of sin and death, if that's the thing that's going to make it all better, then that would be a clear sign of your destruction. Suffering every day, knowing that this world is so broken, and longing for the day when we will be free, free from sin and all of its power for all of eternity, aching for that day is a sure sign of your salvation. So it is a gift to be suffering every day like that because of what it points to in you. Because those who want to just get back to normal, those who find joy and comfort in living under the oppression of a sin-cursed world as long as they can just have a little more freedom in it, they're part of the kingdom of darkness. We, surely we can all understand the desire to get back to the way things were, especially since it means that we can come together again. Right? Because isn't that part of this suffering? Isn't it? Right? Aren't we, isn't it true, as, as I look out at this mostly empty room where you should be, Aren't you feeling that suffering right now? Don't you see how that suffering is a gift? This, this hurts. It's a suffering that the world knows nothing about out there because they're concerned with toilet paper. Suffering they have no idea about. But how how devastating would it be for us, right? And how little it would speak of us as Christians if we were not suffering in this way right now, right? It's a gift that we're suffering like this. As so as great as it might be to come back to, to normal, and even if COVID was eradicated from existence tomorrow, nothing, nothing of any ultimate significance has actually gotten better in this world. The one who is of the heavenly kingdom suffers and aches knowing that this world is not how it should be. Something is deeply wrong and it will not be made right until the king returns. Suffering is a gift from God because what causes you to suffer, 
and how it affects you is the sign that God uses to confirm your salvation, to confirm your standing in the kingdom of God. It's a gift. We need it. Therefore, suffering is divine favor upon you because it proves you for what you truly are. It gives you confidence as you suffer more intensely, as you observe the grievous state of the people around you trapped in their sin. The fact that you hate that sin and you hurt for them and your heart breaks for them that they're trapped in it, even though they don't see anything wrong with it, and they may even cause you to suffer more as they defend their right to have that very thing that you grieve over them about. The fact that you are hurting for them and you care nothing about your own reputation or the awful things that might be said of you because you are broken over their sin and speak to them about it, that is a sign. That is a sign that you belong to Christ, that your heart has been changed. You see sin now as Christ sees it. You can know for certain this is a sign of your salvation and the fact that they don't understand it at all, that they don't get it, that they not only don't concern themselves with the disgusting nature of sin, but even celebrate it. It's a sign that they're still blind, a sign of their destruction. The gift of your belief goes hand in hand because it must, it must, with the gift of suffering. And suffering isn't just a gift as you observe what causes you to suffer, but also as you see your response to it. As you see how you respond to suffering, as we watch so many people just come completely undone and turn to almost anything imaginable to help them cope, like we said, drugs, alcohol, just a mind-numbing, relentless pursuit of leisure, turn to gluttony or any other sinful habit that allows them to get over this suffering or allows them to, to work their way through it. But you, Christians, see it as a gift, the gift of suffering, as it causes you to see the, the sinful waste in pursuing any of those things, and you turn to your God. You put your trust in Him. The gift of, of suffering shows you what is most important to you, what you prize and what you realize is your only need in times of suffering and difficulty. The gift of suffering is a gift in the ultimate way, in the most ultimate way that anything could ever be a gift to you because it causes you, it causes you to depend more on God and to draw near to him. What, what greater gift could you have? So we need to stop thinking about how our suffering can merely lead to God accomplishing things that will be a blessing to us. And we need to start to, start to understand our suffering itself as a blessing, as a gift that becomes a sign to the world of what one appointed to salvation truly prizes and what one whose life is headed toward destruction truly prizes. It is easy for us to see and understand what a gracious gift our belief is, right? That's easy. But we also need to understand that the greatest gift that God could have given us to accompany that gift is this suffering. The suffering which proclaims to you a constant, reassuring testimony to, to ourselves and to those around us of the certain reality of the gift of belief in the gospel that we have received. Certain reality of that gift because of the gift of suffering. Second point Second point, second and third points aren't as long. Second point, the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ. The second thing we need to understand about our suffering is that it is for the cause of Christ. Or we could have included both this point and the, the following point as subpoints, actually, under the category of the, of the first point. There was a version of the sermon that was that way, but because they really are more reasons why suffering is a gift, why we should see it as a gift. But I, I do want to consider this truth on its own a little bit the cause of Christ. Do you see, Christian, do you see your suffering as, as for the sake of Christ or on behalf of Christ? Just look again at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You can see by the repetition just how important it is that we are thinking in these terms. The, the context of this passage is, is definitely referring to a specific type of suffering that is directly related to the Philippian believer's faith. They are being opposed directly because of their faith. This is a, a trial. This is a type of suffering that is completely unique to Christians. And that is, again, that is the direct context of this passage, the type of suffering we endure that would not take place if we were not Christians. When we lose friends because of our relationship with Christ or when we are called names and, and ridiculed because of our refusal to compromise with the world, when we're willing to call what's right, right, and what's wrong, wrong. When things at work or school become more difficult, even to the point where we face being fired or are maybe just kind of squeezed out of our jobs because of our union with Christ. And I know some of you in our church have experienced that already. These types of things are becoming more and more prevalent in this increasingly God-hating society we live in. And we should expect to endure them to a greater and greater degree. Expect that. That means that when you are spending your time trying to be in one of those insider types of Christians, the type of person who the outside world will see as cool and relatable, in order to try and avoid that type of suffering, when you do that, when you live like that, you're failing to be a faithful believer on multiple levels. You're failing to be bold, of course, and you're failing to stand for what you know to be the truth. You're, you're failing to rightfully acknowledge your allegiance to God, your allegiance to his kingdom alone. You're doing that by prioritizing the opinions of others and wanting to please them instead of God. So you, you're doing that, but you are also failing to believe this passage. You're failing in that to believe that suffering is a gift. You are failing to believe that God's word is true when he tells you that suffering is a gift, when you try and run from it. You have decided that, that you know better than God does about what a gift for you should look like, and this is not it. That, that's what you've decided. God has said it's a gift, and instead of receiving it as a gift, you've decided to run away from it. So as you... Look at the wording here. It becomes more and more obvious about why having this understanding that suffering is for the sake of Christ is a wonderful gift from God. Because again, remember the, the command that this, this whole section falls under in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of Christ. It is Jesus Christ whose life of perfect obedience has been credited to you. And it is Jesus Christ who took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross in your place. He has accomplished all the work when it comes to your salvation. He stood in your place. So here Paul uses the preposition huper, that, that, uh, Greek preposition huper, that, that it's translated as on behalf of or for the sake of. He uses it here. Um, in verse 29, talking about our suffering for his sake. But elsewhere, he uses that same word to refer to Christ's suffering in our place through his vicarious atoning work. And keep listening. Now, that does not mean that we do anything even remotely similar to the atoning work of Christ when we suffer on his behalf. There, there's, that is not the sense you're supposed to be taking from that. There's nothing in us that Christ needs. It, it just carries over the sense that we are suffering in the way that he would be suffering if he were here. That's kind of the sense to think of it in. It's, it's similar to what Paul was talking about in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Paul is not saying there that Christ 
didn't suffer as much as he needed to suffer in order to accomplish our salvation. So, so you know, it's up to us to take care of the rest of that suffering. No, that rather, that would go against everything else Paul teaches. Rather, the picture there is one of the church. As, as we understand, the church is the body of Christ, as Christ is the head, and there is a there is a, a sum total of afflictions that the body of Christ is going to take upon itself before Christ returns. And as individual members suffer in the ways that Jesus would be persecuted if he were here, namely all of the different ways that the world rejects him, that, that's the suffering we are to take. We see that clearly in, in Paul's conversion. If you remember back in Acts 9, um, in verse 4, the first thing that Jesus says to Paul after the the light shines from heaven and Paul gets knocked off of his horse. He falls to the ground and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His name was still Saul. But Paul isn't actively persecuting Jesus. Jesus has ascended into heaven at that time. He's, Paul's persecuting his followers, but Jesus is identifying that persecution as persecution to him, on him. So in our union with Christ, we are literally suffering on his behalf as his body, as the body of Christ. We as his body now have the privilege, the joy of suffering the same pains, the same trials, the same mocking that, that the world would inflict on Jesus if he was here. And since they can't lash out at the author of truth, they instead go after his ambassador. That's, that's what we're saying here. We suffer on his behalf. So now this should then hopefully make perfect sense for us. If it is truly the deepest desire of our hearts to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, then of course we are going to want to suffer for his sake. We're going to want that. It should be clear and obvious that that is a gift, right? Because if, if there is suffering... If there is suffering on Christ's behalf that needs to be gone out there in the world, if there's suffering on his behalf that needs to happen out there in the world, then I want a piece of that. I want in on that. Why on earth would I ever recoil from that? If, if suffering for Christ must take place, if it is an essential component of the gift of belief, then I rejoice every time I see it in my life. Even, even though that it means that there is, there's pain there, there is pain there. I, I'm always going to be overjoyed when I see it, whether there's pain or not, because, because I know that this is nothing but assurance and a joyful reminder that I belong to him and that he has made me a part of his kingdom. I'm going to rejoice in that suffering. Even though this is, again, definitely in reference to the specific suffering that comes with persecution. I hope you can see, based on what we talked about earlier um, in that first point, that you should be able to see the sense in which the way believers suffer in every situation, how that can be and should be for Christ's sake. So this takes place as you respond differently in heart and attitude to the trials that everyone else goes through. Yes, there's certain trials that everyone, believer or unbeliever, is going to face. Persecution is unique to Christians. But even in those similar trials, we do it in a way that demonstrates that we belong to God. And again, the current culture is, the current way the world is, is a great illustration of this. Our reaction, the Christian's reaction to this really relatively small trial when we are kept from doing all of those normal things because of, you know, masks or social distancing or a government that's doing too much or not doing enough, depending on who you talk to, our response to this tiny bit of suffering should not look in any way like those who are lashing out in anger and in frustration. And it should not look like those who lose sleep at night over their fear of their health or of the economy. It shouldn't look like either of those. In whatever small way we may be suffering, we embrace it as a gift where we demonstrate to all that we do not suffer the same way they do. This, is, this suffering is different. We do it in such a way that proves to us and to those around us that we belong to Christ. 
Even in something like this, like this current state we're living in, we suffer for the sake of Christ in, in the ways that we do not respond the way that our flesh and, and the way that an obsession with self-interest would demand that we do, the way that everyone else is, but rather we trust in God. So that's point two. We need to understand that not only is our suffering really and truly a gift from God, but in that gift, as a Christian, it is your joy to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ. Point three, the privilege of participation, the privilege of participation. So the third truth that we need to understand about our suffering is that we do not suffer alone. There is a privilege of participation. This is, this is what we see as we go on to verse 30, when he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. This is what we see going on right there. Now, Paul is reminding them of the fact that as you suffer for the sake of Christ, you're joining yourself with other Christians. And not just joining them like we're all suffering, we all have to deal with our own trials, we all have our own different ways we're suffering, but the idea here, the way that Paul uses this word, is that you are part of the same conflict, the same conflict. It's not you're all out there fighting your own trials, suffering in different ways, but still all suffering. Paul is encouraging the Philippians that they are engaged in the same conflict that he is in. He's, he isn't just saying that it's a similar kind of conflict or even that it's the same kind of conflict. He is saying that it is the exact same conflict. Not the same kind of, but the exact same. Not, not even a separate version of it. He is speaking of a type of unity within the suffering. The unity within the suffering is once again speaking to the unity that we have in the church. Coming up again, as it so often does, the unity of the church. Another picture of just how deep that unity is supposed to be. It's kind of, it kind of goes back to that picture from Colossians 1. As the body of Christ, we are suffering. We are suffering as one body. The same conflict. Remember what we talked about last week, about what what real church unity looks like. Right there in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. When we are living with that understanding of the church, then this is how we think of our own suffering. It's, not, it's, no, it's no longer just a personal suffering we're going through. We are, we are so connected to each other. We're so connected together that when one part suffers, we all suffer. There's no suffering that you or I walk through that is not the suffering of the whole body. Paul uses the, the singular word for conflict here in, in this verse because he's trying to get that point across. It's not you're suffering in the same way that I suffer. He's not saying, he's not saying that like maybe we would often say, hey, don't worry, I can, I can, I can totally relate to the suffering you're going through because you know, I've gone through a similar thing before. It's not that. We, we are not talking about mere empathy, mere empathy in the body of Christ. It, it's greater than that. We're not trying to relate and place ourselves in each other's shoes. We're talking about really suffering together as one. The language of empathy does not describe how the body of Christ should function because it's not how we talk about our own bodies, right? If I fall down the stairs of my house and I break my arm when I hit the ground, my brain doesn't think, that's too bad for my arm. It's connected. My brain tells me that something is wrong with my body. My body, my whole body is being affected. I can't just tell myself that it's just my arm and I should stop worrying about it so much. The suffering is, is all of ours. It belongs to all of us as a group. Paul sees the suffering that the Philippians are going through as an extension of his own suffering. He says, you are engaged in the same conflict, literally the exact same conflict, not a similar kind, but the exact suffering that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And the fact that it is the same conflict would, would cause them to reflect then on two important realities, I think. First, they could be encouraged by the fact that the Apostle Paul, who they were eyewitnesses of his suffering and conflict, 
that he went through. They can be encouraged by what they saw in him. Right? If you remember back, and, and for the sake of time, we won't turn there, but look at Acts 16 sometime, verses 20 through 24. When we, that, that's where Paul and Silas are in Philippi. Acts 16 is where Paul and Silas visit Philippi, and after casting out a demon, they are beaten with rods by an angry mob, flogged and thrown into prison. And, and those who would make up the Philippian church it's being written to now would have seen that or known of it. That would have left an impression on them. Just like when we see someone responding faithfully through suffering, when they are acting like they, under, uh, like they understand and know it to be a gift, and you can see it in the way they suffer. That leaves an impression on us. And that's what they saw in Paul as they endured all of that. And then later that evening, even as Paul and Silas are beaten and bloody and lying in prison, they're praying and singing hymns. That's the testimony that the Philippians have of the suffering they saw in Paul. And after witnessing such faithful suffering and being able to, to call that experience to mind, for, for the Philippians to hear that man say, that man who suffered in that way, what you all are going through, that's an extension of what you saw in me. What an encouragement for them. If you saw Paul suffer as faithfully as he did, if you witnessed that, then wouldn't it be just about the best thing you could imagine to hear that man confirm that you share the same faith as him? You share the same faith as him by, by claiming to be a participant in your suffering. How encouraging it would be to hear that. So they're encouraged by it. But second, the other thing that they would hear in this statement from Paul is the reminder that the suffering is ongoing. As he says, the same conflict you saw in me and now hear that I have. The conflict I still have. So just like he has already indicated by, by his verb usage above, Paul now exemplifies as he draws, as he draws the attention to himself that the, the gift of suffering is not one that I left there in that prison cell in Philippi. It's ongoing. It will remain with him always until his death. And he is not only merely okay with that, but he embraces it as a gift. And that is how we must also. Even though the Philippians were not yet facing that flogging, the imprisonment that Paul had, he sees all suffering for the sake of Christ as part of the same suffering as the body of Christ. One Christian brother, even today, might be imprisoned overseas, maybe facing death at the hands of his government suffering that way, and some believers may just, may just have to live faithfully through the many pressures of the pagan culture that surrounds us, that pagan culture that's constantly imploring us to give in and to act like them, find unity with them, stand faithfully there. Different kinds of suffering, maybe, in that sense, different types, but it is, in a greater sense, the same suffering, the suffering of the body of Christ, the constant ongoing suffering that the church of Jesus Christ will be graciously given for as long as we are here until Jesus returns. It may look a little different depending on the place and time where each of us live, where each believer lives, but it's the same suffering. And it is a gift that is continually reminding us. We are joyfully reminded throughout every moment of our suffering of the glorious truth, the glorious truth that we belong to him. A reminder that those who are his will not only believe, but will also suffer for his sake, knowing that truth, that, that his people will constantly suffer, constantly be opposed, that that will not end. No believer, no believer, God forbid, would ever want for a second to live out of, to, to, to be left out of this. He would never want to be left out of that suffering. No one would ever look at Paul 
I pray you would never look at Paul and, and, and all of the great saints throughout church history who have come before us and who have suffered well through, through far worse trials than we have gone through for the most part. That we would never look at that and say, I want no part of that. I want no part of that. Of course we do. Of course we do. Those are God's people. And God's people suffered. So, may we eagerly embrace the gift and the joy of suffering for the sake of Christ, knowing that through this we see the great sign, that great sign, a joy to us because we know that this is the sign that we belong to him. He has given us suffering so that we can live in constant joy and reassurance that our salvation is real, that we are really a part of his church because nothing else could possibly explain this response to suffering. Nothing else could. And while the world may look at it and look at us and see it as a sign that we are out of our minds, as they did to Paul, that we're blind to reality, the truth is that it's a sign that our minds have been renewed and that our eyes have been actually opened to eternity. So let's embrace this gift. Father, thank you uh, for your word. And we thank you for the suffering that you have given us because of what it points to. Oh, how miserable, miserable a life we would be living if right now we weren't suffering because of the fact that we can't gather as a church. How shallow, how vapid the life that doesn't long for that. Oh, how awful it would be if we did not suffer as we walk around and see a world enveloped in sin and rejoicing in sin. So we thank you for that, Father. And we, we pray that we would respond rightly, that we would, we would be those who think of suffering in a right way, in a godly way, and keep these truths in mind and that it's a gift and a joy to do it for Christ's sake. And that shows that we're part of your church. A unity that runs deeper than we can know. In union with Christ. Oh, what a joy to suffer for the one who died for us. May we keep that in our mind. May we suffer well. May we suffer well. In Jesus' name. Amen.